Hello, my name is Michelle Yonachan, the wandering book collector, and this is my podcast, conversations with writers exploring what's informed their books and their lives around themes of movement, memory, sense of place, borders, identity, belonging, and home. The Wandering Book Collector podcast is supported by Abercrombie & Kent, Toomey, and Ultimate Library. I'm joined by the writer and poet Kapka Kasabova, discussing her latest book, To the Lake, A Journey of War and Peace. The title lake is actually two lakes, Lake Ohrid and Lake Prespa in the Southern Balkans. Among Kapka's previous books are Border, A Journey to the Edge of Europe, focusing on the nexus of Bulgaria, Turkey and Greece, just to the east of those twin lakes. And another book of hers, Street Without a Name, is a coming-of-age memoir set in Bulgaria as the country navigates from communism through the fall of the Berlin Wall and beyond. Kapka, welcome. Hello. Your latest book, Kapka, To the Lake, opens with you explaining how three generations of women before you took to the road and emigrated. Your great-grandmother from the Kingdom of Yugoslavia to the Kingdom of Bulgaria, then your grandmother from the Federative People's Republic of Yugoslavia to the People's Republic of Bulgaria. Interesting how names change. Um, your mother from Bulgaria to New Zealand with you, and then you from New Zealand to Scotland, where you are now. Do you think, Kapka, this pattern of behaviour might be inherited? Do you know, I was not even aware of um, this pattern on a conscious level until I considered going on this journey, you know, back to, to my grandmother's lake. And it was only then that when I looked at, looked more closely at um, the immigration patterns in my family, that I became consciously aware um, you know, that, 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 that there is, in fact, um, a kind of repetitive behavior <laughs> there. Um, and it's funny because I think that's how things often are in families. We know things deeply on an unconscious level because we've lived with them our whole lives. But we're not necessarily always at that level of understanding that, you know, yes, this has happened. And, and even less, you know, that. The, the question of why this has happened, what what is the hinterland, as it were? And I think I understood as soon as I made that decision, it was not, um, you know, it was a decision that was years in the making to properly return to the maternal lake, you know, there's something very, very sort of symbolic, instantly symbolic about, you know, returning to a body of water that that your whole maternal line comes from. I understood it was not going to be an ordinary kind of return. And I knew that I was going to face not just the lake and my grandmother, um, but the whole hinterland of stories in the family and beyond. So do you think that this kind of multi-generational kind of serial emigrant behavior, does that steal you in a way for this? You know, in the, in the sense that it's, it becomes the norm to pick up and move or contrarily does it um does it imbue you with even greater insecurity well i mean that was one of the questions that i took to the lake in a way um one of the personal questions it, it became you know in the course of the journey and in the course of the book um a much larger 
kind of question um you know it became a kind of balkan question and ultimately um you know a question about human behavior because really you know with the the opening chapter of the book talks about something in the family that i call the pain um and the pain is associated in our family with with um with separation with saying goodbye to places and people that you love um and ultimately, you know, the pain seems to have manifested in my maternal line as some form of illness. And really, that was my point of departure. This, and that's what gave this journey the urgency. You know, it wasn't really just like a leisurely kind of saunter across, across the lake. You know, it, there was a real urgency um, to this question because, you know, I, I, I had been unwell my mother had been unwell. My grandmother died young. Um, and when I looked back, I saw that ailing, um, chronic ailing, kind of, you know, dramatic ailing, actually had, um, it had an emotional, symbolic value in this family. And that was one of the questions I took to the lake. Where does this pain come from? Why do we ail in this family, the, the, the women in this family? Why... Do we find it unbearable to say goodbye? And you present very starkly the premise of the book on the first page, which is by doing this journey to the place of your ancestors, that you might bear witness and, and avoid repeating these old patterns, maybe also avoid getting chronically ill, as you put it. And you also said you felt like you could become an unwitting agent of destruction. So do you feel like that journey then, that the book was successful or or are you even more daunted by how deep passions run? Well, you know, I think every, every true journey changes you. It, you know, the journey changes the journey woman, but the thrill I think of a real journey is that you don't quite know how, how that change is going to unfold, what you're going to learn um, about yourself and about the place and I think it's it's the relationship it's that encounter that really interests me so encounter with living people and with and with your dead I was going on a kind of reckoning journey with you know with these kind of shadowy these shadows in the family so it really is in a psychological sense and I think this is a kind of as, as much a psychological book as a geographical one it is a kind of descent into the shadow realm um, of inheritance. I mean, inheritance always comes with baggage for all of us <laughs> in all our families. <laughs> and it's not necessarily negative or positive. It, it's just something we carry, you know, without even realizing how burdened we are. In the Balkans, the baggage comes in the form of borders very often, borders which are traumatic, artificial borders which involve separation division, um, you know, artificial kind of engineered identities, which are often very recent, so that, you know, I find myself in a family where, you know, we, we are of two different nationalities, Bulgarian and Macedonian. And I was interested in exploring these, you know, these questions close up, not in a theoretical way, but in an embodied, um, visceral way. Well, well you, you've known firsthand what it's like to live on one side of a hard border because you grew up 
in the 70s and 80s behind the Iron Curtain, behind from the perspective of where we sit now. Um, in an earlier book, you wrote that it, gives, that it gave you a, a permanent border-like feeling inside you. I wonder how that line on a map, given your age and stage in history, compared to your great-grandmother, your grandmother and your mother, how that line on a map shaped you and what you're doing. Well, you know, I think um, it, it kind of um, really made me who, 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 I, who I am in terms of, um, um, you know, this hyper-awareness from an early stage. It was completely subliminal and unconscious because for children it is. You kind of, you kind of um, soak up your environment. And my environment was, was like an open-air prison, and I sensed that even though, um, you know, I had a lovely childhood, but I knew that there were lines that we couldn't cross. Um, and and the injustice of that um, was formative. I, I think I was formed by a sense of injustice. And, you know, children are very sensitive to injustice. Um, and, and so I think for me, this act of, you know, crossing and recrossing the forbidden line, this kind of the traumatic line, the line that I, you know, I, I want to kind of, um, you know, the transgressive line, um, which in fact, um, given time turns into, into a scrap heap, literally the iron curtain that I grew up with, and which was only 20 kilometers from um, the Black Sea beaches, um, you know, where we went on holiday, uh, and on the other side was Turkey. Um, the Iron Curtain, you know, when you see it now, what's left of it, it's um, it, it's literally the scrap heap of history. Um, and, and in fact, people recycled it, um, you know, when the regime fell. So this recycling of, of yesterday's terrors, the materials of our lives, um, really interests me. And just to go back to the lakes, um, of course, the lakes are borderless, but they are shared by three countries. And for the first time in their history, in fact, they are kind of severed by, by this double-triple border between Greece, Albania, and North Macedonia. And believe it or not, um, people observe even the water borders, even though they, they're not there. <laughs> um, you know, they are inside people's heads. So the boatman who takes you across uh, Lake Ohrid um, will not, on the Macedonian side, will not trespass across the invisible border in the water to take you to that fish restaurant over there on the Albanian side. You can smell the fish and hear the Italian music playing, but he will not take you there in case he gets fined. So this is how the border can get inside you and become a kind of illness really it's fascinating because the book you have a, you have maps in your book and it's very obviously kind of ruler drawn borders you know that these kind of straight lines that kind of slash Ohrid in two and then Prespa in three um, and then little Prespa which is kind of tiny comma shaped mini lake and even that's in split it's obviously not natural but it's interesting that they're abided by out of kind of like a self-censorship. I wanted to ask you about how it was traveling around that region at that time, just on a very practical level, but perhaps also if you know how it was in COVID. 
you know, I'm used to I'm used to invisible borders and people abiding by them. The psychology of border is very borders is very um, very familiar to me, um, and I guess I'm interested in the psychology of it, um, in how and and how that psychology, you know, how the border inside the head of the boatman on late Ohrid will then and of course uh, there is a whole chapter about that particular boatman and and his backstory, uh, his life story really. In, in an Albanian um, camp for political prisoners, entire families lived there. It's an extraordinary story uh, that this um, seemingly ordinary man um, gifted me. You know, it was a great gift as we, as we crossed the lake, but not to the Albanian side. I understood why uh, the border was inside him. And then with my cousin, we retraced a little bit of what's left of the Via Ignatia, uh, the ancient Roman roads that was um, in use for almost 20 centuries, believe it or not, which is why these lakes were um, kind of prospered for a while. Um, there were a big sort of trade and, and religious center. Um, and we saw an old man, you know, talking about recycling recycling history we saw an old man on the old via ignatia he said you know there was lots more before of the old road people just call it the old road there um but we we kind of um you know we just took the stones for our barns so recycling recycling and making something new with the scrap heap of history um is what, what people seem to do in these remote places, seemingly per periphery <laughs> places um, in the Balkans. And I'm fascinated by these stories. And, the, you know, traveling in the time of pandemic, it was very interesting to see, you know, my new book is set in um, a valley with three, three big mountains in the southern central Balkans in Bulgaria near the Greek border. Um, remote communities uh, living close to nature. It was interesting to see how differently they experienced the pandemic, not just on the ground, but psychologically as well. And how was that, Kapka? Because the, the people that I was spending time with had experienced a lot of... Um, Oh, a lot of calamity, really, a lot of adversity, politically, economically. They were not as rattled um, by the pandemic psychologically as, say, you know, my friends in Sofia, the capital, or, you know, people back here in Scotland where I live. For them, it was just another thing, you know, just another calamity. Oh, it's just another pandemic. <laughs> So it was, it was, um, it was kind of sobering in in a in an unexpected way for me to um, to see that um, in a way that unflappable. Um, I don't know. They kind of stared it down. Um, a lot of people in in these mountain communities, they just got on with things. Um, it's just a matter of perspective, isn't it? So yes. Take us kind of visually there, Kapka, to, to, to the lake, to the southern Balkans. Can you describe the geography of Ohrid and Prespa? Yeah, these two lakes are some of the oldest in the world. And 
the curious thing about them is that they are separated by a mountain, a, a karstic, my limestone mountain. Um, and in fact, the top of that mountain, it's called Galicica, is one of the few places um, from where you can see both lakes at once. So they look very separate on the surface of the earth. But the secret to their longevity is actually there. It's a secret relationship, which is, um, you know, an underground relationship. So they're linked by underground rivers and the higher lake, Prespa, it's about 600 meters higher, um, feeds the lower lake, Ohred, through these underground rivers. Um, they, are, they have very different characters. You know, I call them twin lakes. And they have very different um, appearance, um, different morphology, um, slightly different history, a very different atmosphere, different people. Um, so they're like slightly separate kind of worlds. And even the bird populations are different because Lake Prespa is a major hub for migratory birds, um, pelicans and yeah, whereas Lake Ohrid is more of a tourist um, you know, better known, kind of longer visited, um, more anciently inhabited lake. Um, and I know you went there as a child with your grandmother, or where your grandmother's from. I wondered if your, if your childhood memories of the place were very different or similar to kind of the, the new memories you made on the journey to research the book. You know, my abiding memory uh, was confirmed that it was this vast sea-like lake. I mean, it's about 30 kilometers in length. Um, so it's like a small sea, like a small landlocked sea. And, you know, it has a kind of Mediterranean feel. Um, so it's where the Balkans meet the Mediterranean. It's a very particular kind of, the light is, um, is very particular there. And because the water of the lake is filtered by these limestone mountains it kind of looks immaterial so it's a very unusual kind of um ethereal place and revisiting you know those those memories those relatives um had its own kind of poignancy of course but i was also i was also curious to just um you know visit albania for the first time uh, which shares the lake impossible to visit Albania across the water it turns out but you can you know cross the checkpoint on on land uh, a checkpoint that was closed for half a century um, unilaterally from the Albanian side during the um, the Hoxha regime and I was curious to discover Lake Prespa so so really what could have been a kind of more of a memoir I suppose I had enough material for a family memoir. Um, but I quickly realized that I was interested in, in the people who were there now and their family stories. So every story that I tell, you know, in the book, usually a chapter is a story, is about someone's family, family experience of the lakes, of their shifting borders and changing regimes and that kind of merry-go-round, <laughs> that kind of Balkan madness of, you know, the border syndrome and how the end of empire in Europe, the various collapsing empires of Europe played themselves out, this kind of uh, Leviathan collapse of the age of empire, how that played itself out on these two lakes and their people, including, of course, my family, and how 
that defined that determined the new borders that that are as you say ruler drawn across land and water and how that severed families it just chopped families you know down the middle like an axe the way balkan and middle eastern borders did post empire i really felt my moods swing and reading your book and maybe that was also to do with these very different lakes with kind of quite different geographies and and histories but I, I at times felt very uneasy uncomfortable you know the trauma of the border syndrome and burdened but then in equal measure you know uplifted by the words on your page and buoyant in the really literal sense of the word kind of carried by the the lake's waters when, when you're there boots on the ground on the banks of the lake staring at this body of water how do you feel? Oh, you feel um, you feel like the lakes. You feel full of light. Um, it's it's an, I mean, both lakes are some of the most you know beautiful corners of 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 Eurasia. And if you if you swim in Lake Ohrid, I think the experience of swimming in Lake Ohrid, Prespa is different; it's darker. Um, but Lake Ohrid, it's swimming in it is like flying. And this extraordinary kind of I would even call it um, spiritual quality of Lake Ohrid. It's a kind of bio spiritual quality the place has it is recognized. You know, people over the um, over the centuries um, have have felt have have experienced things even mysterious things things you know things of the spirit things to do with your mood being lifted um and staying that way really it's not a coincidence that lake ohrid was known as the balkan jerusalem for its 365 churches and chapels one for each day of the year there are hundreds of ruins in the hills and some of these churches are cave churches. So it, it's an extraordinary sort of landscape on both lakes where you can still visit some of these, the more accessible cave churches, um, which were hermitages for monks. There were communities of monks and nuns uninterrupted for a thousand years from the 10th century. Can you believe it? <laughs> it's oh, from the 10th century. And the fact that um, Islam was the dominant religion for 500 years didn't interfere with this community life of of the lakes these um you know these monastic communities so the fact that you know war has stamped itself on these lakes as it has on the whole of the balkans is is a kind of is an absurdity it's is is a is a perversity you know it's as if it's as if the land there provides the heaven and humans provided the hell. And these two sort of, these two things, you know, the, the heaven and the hell, um, the profound peace of the place, it's natural peace. And then the war that humanity, especially the end of empire, uh, brought to the place, that provides a kind of complex experience when you go oh because also the boatman um tanas he he says about his children who are not living there anymore he says you, know, you can't be free here you know they're free wherever they are is that just his imaginings of, of one of the left behinds 
Or is there a truth to that? Do you think, in spite of this kind of ethereal, uplifting nature of the lake that you describe, there's also a captivity? Yeah, well, Tanas, the boatman, um, lived his life in captivity, so I think he speaks for himself. Um, and yet he has found his own freedom in roaming the lake, or at least that part of it which he feels is available to him. He has set himself free in that way. But there is some truth. There is a psychological truth to what he's saying, because take, for instance, um, the country Macedonia. Um, while I was there researching the book, um, it was renamed to North Macedonia, you know, a political a political act designed to kind of facilitate its accession to the EU, which in fact it didn't, because as usual, <laughs> European politics got in the way. And it was actually quite a traumatic thing. I think changing your name, whether personally or as a as a country, is is kind of is difficult. You know, it's 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 quite a profound thing. And so in a sense, you can't be free in a place which I think is still kind of is yet to transcend its traumas. And I think the only way really, and that was in a way, I think the deeper, the deeper meaning of my journey, at least for, for me, was to transcend some of the suffering, some of the pain that was passed on to me, which is the pain of the land, you know, these kind of the pain of, of everything that the land has, has endured. Um, I, I, I wanted to pick up on the names because you're very careful about citing accurate names of places and getting the labels right. Is that out of respect? Or do you personally, Cap, can you place also great meaning to a name? Well, you know, names are potent things. And um, I think it's more that I'm aware of just how sensitive um, names are. Even the, the very name Macedonia is very sensitive, you know, for the Macedonians, but also for the Greeks who claim kind of, you know, the cultural, you know, claim that Macedonian heritage is in fact Greek. Um, all these multiple sensitivities about cultural inheritance, about, about dominant historical narratives. And, you know, the, generally speaking, the Balkan nations, in fact, not generally speaking, um, it's, it's true of every single Balkan nation, have a way of narrating their history, which is very, I would say, monocultural, very self-serving to the majority you know, to the current majority. So um, the complexity of, of, of our national histories in the Balkans, which is a kind of Balkan complexity in the best sense of the word, in a kind of cosmopolitan um, ecosystem complexity, <laughs> is kind of not just airbrushed, it's cleansed from the official um, national narrative. So there's, um, you know, there's a lot of, I think historical revisionism is endemic in national narratives in the Balkans. So that therefore, does identity on the ground, does identity matter more or less? Because you've got examples of both. You've got examples of, um, you're quoting an, another writer, 19th century writer, Henry Brailsford, who talks about this, these two brothers who one felt Greek and one felt Bulgarian. And he posed this question about how can two boys from the same mother have 
this feeling of two different identities. And, and you very nicely wrote, why don't we ask the mother how she felt too, by the way. Um, but we had, there is this flux of, of you know, the, the countries like Mercury, I think you described them, the, the, the battlefields, the history, the borders, the border mountains are full of bones, you write. And, and yet at the same time, you talk about us, we're the same people. Is that what you think? Is that what you want to believe? Well, um, it is a deep truth that we are all one people, that our humanity is, is equal. And every family story that you hear um, is twisted, is stamped with the crimes of the patriarchy, the crimes of late empire, of warmongering, um, divisive um, politics, the divide and rule, um, An interesting moment ideology. talking about that with Russia and Ukraine in in absolutely right the, now. The, the the crimes of the patriarchy, which in fact is in you know is um, I think the last two thousand years of of patriarchy are, are coming to an end. We are seeing the end. We you know I think we're lucky to live you know, at the moment in history when we are seeing the end of that, I do, I do believe it. And yet, you know, it, 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 it sort of takes, takes a long time to die. And these last throws, I think these last warmongerings um, in the old style are painful, you know, painful to, um, to experience. And, you know, going back to this question of identity, um, it is, that is, I think that identity is tyranny. That is what I found on the ground and in my own family, that, you know, the tyranny, the, the pressure to define yourself as one thing and not another is what makes people ill, what makes nations ill. <laughs> it denatures them. And my grandmother lived through that. You know, she defined herself as Bulgarian and her brothers defined themselves as Yugoslav and then Macedonian and this constantly shifting sort of identity mosaic. There is a chapter in the book called Roads where I tell the story of this woman and her family in, in the town of Ohrid who are the keepers of the last dervish monastery in Ohrid. She converted to Islam um, because she fell in love with the sheikh of the Teke. Uh, who is an ethnic Turk. There was once a large uh, large Muslim minority there. Uh, now there is a small Turkish and Albanian Muslim minority. And the story of that woman and her family is fascinating. And it's a kind of um, nutshell history of how, how religions and peoples have married and divorced and remarried over the centuries. And it's an incredibly colorful story. And incredibly fluid. Like the lady. Incredibly fluid. And ultimately, the flesh and blood of someone's life, what, what it's about, it comes down to love. Who you love, what you love, that's who you are. You dedicate this book, Kapka, to the children of refugees, which I am one, so thank you for that. One of many millions trying to figure ourselves out. But I am interested in that dedication to the children of exiles and refugees. Tell me about that choice. My mother was 
the child of a refugee, my grandmother, um, who was a, a refugee from Macedonia with her family, my great-grandparents from Lake Ohrid in Sofia across this fluid border. Um, they didn't starve, but they went hungry and they knew that feeling of being a second-class citizen, you know, from a minority, from being away from home, losing status, not just money, losing a sense of who you are, losing your place, and carving out a place for yourself again and again. And that's a theme in our family. It's a theme in the book. And one of the keys, at least in our family, to that successful carving out of a, of a sense of self and then a sense of place in the in the world um, goes goes back to books, because even if even if they were refugees, you know, between the wars in in a poor neighborhood of Sofia, and they didn't have enough to eat, they had their books with them. And my grandmother became a radio journalist and a writer, and that love of books has come down to me via the lake. Well, very so, for the wandering book collector. <laughs> but I, I, you know, as someone yourself who voluntarily perhaps is, knows how to start from scratch again and again, starting from zero, since Bulgaria, you were in New Zealand, you were in Argentina, I know, now Scotland. Is there something you look for when you choose where to go next? Yeah. I, I haven't I haven't um, moved for a while, um, although um, the last kind of big move I made was from city life to rural life, from Edinburgh to the Scottish Highlands. So it's the same country. It's not a big move, but it felt like quite a big shift um, in my kind of inner, inner sense of what I wanted to be close to, and that was nature. So I think... I think I've probably been like that my whole life, even though I spent 40 years defining myself as an urbanite um, and lived in cities, big and big and small. I think on a subconscious level, I needed to be close to a hill, to a mountain, to a forest, to a river, to really feel myself. A lake, don't forget. <laughs> Especially to a lake. And the next book that you're writing, Kapka, I know it's called Elixir. Tell us about that project. Elixir is another journey through a kind of magical geography, um, which is also imbued with, with pain and suffering. So again, we have that paradox of very beautiful, um, I call it the valley at the end of time. It's more than a valley, it's actually three major mountains um, and, and the river that's 240 kilometers long. Um, the river Mesta starts in the highest place in the Balkans, uh, Musala Peak, um, and empties in the Aegean. And initially I wanted to follow that river and, and its people, uh, but then the pandemic came and I couldn't cross the Bulgarian-Greek border. So the structure of the book was <laughs> changed, um, but for the better. It became a, a slightly different book. It became a kind of circular book rather than a linear one. So I, I, I kind of, I'm grateful for that, for that restriction. And the book explores the relationship between people and plants. And that theme of ailing and healing is, is really the, 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 the big theme of the book. And I go on a kind of journey of 
looking for people who are looking for healing. <laughs> um, a lot of looking for, a lot of searching going on there. <laughs> well, it's interesting that we're kind of finishing up with the upside, perhaps, of a border that um, it allowed for a more circular journey over a more linear one. Finally, there's a silver lining to a border. <laughs> well, I hope, can you come back? and tell us about that book. Thank you for joining me on The Wandering Book Collector. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And my thanks to the supporters of this podcast, Abercrombie & Kent, Toomey and Ultimate Library. Goodbye. <laughs>